All right. Thank you, everyone, so much for joining us here for, for Good Friday. It is good to gather together. If you're viewing online, thank you also for taking time to be with us that way as well. Um, tonight we'll be in 1 John 4, as, uh, as Drew read for us, talking about the cross and God's love. As we go there, would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for the work that you have done in sending your Son, Jesus Christ. Would you tonight open up our hearts to receive the love of Christ, to know it more deeply, and to be compelled by it, Lord, to love you and to love others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, <laughs> back whenever I was uh, in college, the first two summers in between my freshman and sophomore year and my sophomore and junior year, I staffed at a Christian summer camp. And at the time, I was only a, a believer for a couple of years and uh, was very excited to, to share the gospel with these high school students, was very excited about studying the Bible and, and growing in, in my faith in that way and in, in doctrine. Uh, but providentially, uh, my love for people was rather immature, and providentially the Lord placed people in leadership there and peers around me who, during those summers, really embodied the love of God and helped me to see what that looked like. And so I can, I can mark growth in my own love for people from those two summers, the way that people uh, welcomed me, included me, the way they taught me, the way they corrected me um, in gracious ways. And that was something that I, uh, I would not have grown in the same way if I had not had their example. And in this text here, in 1 John 4, John sets before us the highest example of love, God sending his son to die on the cross for our sins. And looking to Jesus in the scripture, in this text, we can see love, we can learn what love is, and then we can also then imitate that love. So we're going to look at uh, this text and really just kind of hover around two ideas. One, the purpose of the cross, and then the other, the example of the cross. So the purpose of the cross and the example of the cross. The purpose of the cross, if we look at, uh, look at verse 10. In verse 10 it says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Here's, here's what John says the purpose of Christ's coming was, to be the propitiation for our sins. The first thing I just want to look at very specifically is that Christ came for our sins, for our sins. Now, why, why is that important for us to, to stop and, and really pay attention to in all of this text? Well, because I, I believe that the Bible is clear and it's unapologetic in its teaching that we are sinful and that we have sinned against a good and holy God. And that is all the more important because many people today do not believe that. There's a very pervasive belief that man is basically good, 
or at the least were morally neutral. And so um, what we tend to hear, instead of talking about sin, you tend to hear terms that talk kind of around it. You'll hear the word mistakes. Yes, we've all, we've all made mistakes uh, before. You'll hear brokenness. We're all broken people, right? We're, we're in need of, of help, of fixing. You'll hear imperfect, right? None of us are perfect. We've, we've all done things in the past before. None of us are perfect. Or that we're unfulfilled, right? We're just all looking for more. We're unfulfilled, and maybe that's where we find God. Now, none of these terms are particularly untrue. I mean, we have made mistakes. We are broken. We are imperfect. We are unfulfilled outside of Christ. So it's true, but it falls short of the full testimony of Scripture. And really, um, it kind of seeks to minimize that truth. So tell me, if, uh, if you took a pair of binoculars and gave it to you know, two, three, four-year-olds, what's probably the first thing that they're going to do with it? Maybe something like this? I don't, it, my kids did it too, okay? It's, it's okay. You're going to put it on backwards, right? Here's the big end. That's what we're going to stick over our eyes. And what happens whenever you look at the binoculars through the, through the, that way? Everything looks a whole lot smaller, doesn't it? When we begin to, to look at ourselves, if we look at sin through the world's lens, it looks real small. It looks real insignificant, doesn't it? But that's just not true. That's not what sin is. So first, it's, it's distorted that way. And in order for us to rightly understand sin, we have to start with the Scripture and what it says about sin. So just briefly, instead of that, we see things like this. 1 John 3, verse 4, it says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And that word lawless, it, just, it means literally no law. So when we sin against God, we act as if God has never given us instruction. He's never given us a command to follow. And instead, we live outside of that, without His law. Genesis 6.5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's pretty strong language that's being used there. It doesn't say, The Lord saw that the brokenness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only imperfect or mistaken continually. Calls it wickedness. Calls it evil. And then 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 and 10 it says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Sin, in the, in the biblical view, in God's view, is serious and significant. And people who practice sin, that's all of us, will not enter the kingdom of God. We stand justly condemned before a holy God. See, when we talk about sin being breaking God's law, this is not like, you know, we, we break a, a, a speeding law and the, the cop who pulls us over or the judge who takes us to court to prosecute that. It, it, they're really fairly uninvested in it. They're just upholding the law. But the law is a 
Reflection is a revelation of God's heart, His mind, and His will. And so when we choose to sin and to break that law, it is directly affront to Him because it is revealing again His heart. So that's what sin is. So it is significant that Christ came to be the propitiation for our sins. And again, the other part of that is that he came to be the propitiation. Pastor Michael, a few weeks in Galatians, um, a few weeks ago in Galatians, just very helpfully just said, propitiation just simply means that Christ pays for our sin on the one hand, and on the other, he satisfies the justice and wrath of God on the other, and it secures God's favor for us, right? That two-part, he takes away our sin, and he satisfies the justice and wrath of God. This is really... Uh, Old Testament language. This is really fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system. So if you read in Leviticus 1 with the burnt offering, Leviticus 4 with the sin offering, you read about how the worshipers were supposed to come to the temple if they'd sinned against God, if they'd offended him, they would have to bring a, a sacrifice. They'd bring a bull or a lamb or a goat, whatever was required, and they'd take that to the temple and they'd, they'd put their hands on the head of the animal to represent that this sacrifice was going to take their sin, their offense against God, and the animal would be killed because the penalty of sin was death. And this animal stood as a substitute in their place. And that is why the writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews 9 and Hebrews 10, in the context talking about the temple and the old covenant and the sacrificial system and how Christ is greater than that, he writes about Jesus saying, As it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. This is the sacrificial language. You see the same thing in John 1, verse 29, when John the Baptist sees Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is a propitiation for our sins. That's why Christ came. That's why Christ came. And when you look at this and you, you put it together, sin is not insignificant in light of that, is it? That sin cost the life of the Son of God. If you are here, present, or listening online, and you don't know the Lord, part of that may be because you've not thought very much about your sin. Maybe you haven't thought about it at all, or maybe you've just generally thought that you're a good person. But if we honestly look at the testimony of God's Word and see a holy God and His standard, we should start to come to realize that we have fallen far short of that. And that standing before that holy God, he, we would be held morally accountable to Him. But I hope you also would begin to realize too that the work of Christ is sufficient, that we can repent and put our faith in Him. And that work that Jesus did on the cross on Good Friday, on Good Friday is to make us right with Him. As believers, though, we're really not immune to this thinking either. We can have a low view of sin also, even though we are in Christ. On a day-to-day -day level, I would venture to think many of us may not even think about sin. It, I've, in my own experience with 
with people um, and with my own self, it's infrequent that we confess sin to God or sin to one another. It's infrequent that we seek forgiveness. It's infrequent that we do these things. And, um, and that shows this, this low view of sin that's endemic. Really, sin has become kind of a commonplace thing, and that's true. I mean, obviously, sin is all around us. Sin, we sin every day, everyone around us sin, but that doesn't make it any less significant. Even though we've been saved, even though Christ has taken us from a relationship of a, a criminal to a judge with a father to one of a son and a father or a daughter and a father, sin is no less serious to the Lord now that we're believers, and it shouldn't be any less serious to us either. So do we take sin too lightly? But if sin is, is this great, and Christ's death on the cross was so costly, what would compel God to do it? Why would he send Jesus? Well, the answer that John has very clearly is love. Love. Look at what it says in all throughout this short few verses here. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Verse 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us... I don't know about you, but it's really hard to think how John could be very much clearer as to why the motive, the motivation that God had for us. It was love. It was love. Which brings us to the example of the cross. John is laying out God's love for us so repeatedly because the love of God compels us to love one another. Compels us to love one another. Verse 11 says, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This is similar to what Jesus said in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 13. It says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Christ has set us the example of love, and we are to follow that. We are to follow that. We're going to focus on two aspects of God's love here. Just two aspects. That God's love calls us to love freely, and that God's love calls us to love edifyingly. And before anybody asks, no, edifyingly is not really a word. It's, it's made up, but I needed an adverb, and it worked out really well. So, <laughs> Don't make fun. You'll do it too someday. <laughs> So, but to love freely. Look in, in, uh, again in verse 10. It says, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us. God took a first step to love us. He initiated that love. Okay, when we look at ourselves, when we honestly look at our sin, there is not a whole lot in us that should have compelled God to love us. In fact, everything that we have done in sinning against Him should have brought about the opposite reaction from the Lord. It should have brought about His anger. It should have brought about His, his justice and His condemnation. But instead, God freely chose to love. 
freely chose to love. And He did that before we loved Him. If He had waited for us to love Him, He would have been waiting for a very long time. Very, very long time. He's eternal, but still, I don't think He had long enough to wait. He had to choose to love us. The other aspect of love, uh, in loving freely anyway, I think is, is grace. There's a graciousness to this love. Loving those who are our enemies. So in Matthew chapter 5, verses 44 through 46, Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his Son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do so. God freely chose to love people who had sinned against him. And Christ showed his love. When we read in Romans chapter 5, Paul tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So his action of love for people happened before we repented. It happened before we loved him. It happened before we asked for forgiveness. It happened before we had made things right and stopped sinning. I think that is incredibly, incredibly instructive for the way that we are to love one another. First, again, taking the initiative, if we wait for other people to come and to love us, we're going to miss loving many, many people. We shouldn't be waiting for somebody to come up to us with a big smile on their face, asking how we're doing, and striking up a conversation to reciprocate. We should be ones going up to people in our workplaces. Introduce yourself to coworkers. Talk to them. Ask them questions. How they're doing. See how you can serve people. Take that step. Don't wait for others to come. Take the initiative as God did. That can be a challenge. That can be hard for us, especially for those of us who don't identify as being extroverted or, or whatnot, but, but more than that, to love our enemies, to love people who have harmed us and sinned against us, that is a great deal harder. That is a great deal harder. But this is exactly what Christ does, and Christ calls us into that. So we need the grace of Christ, we need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to do this. This may be, um, I think this is very instructive for our forgiveness again. Christ acted in love towards us before we sought forgiveness, before we, we were repentant. So when somebody sins against you, God's love compels us to continue to love them. It compels us to seek peace with that person, to seek reconciliation and for, to extend forgiveness. And God's love would compel us to extend that forgiveness even before they've, they've come to us in repentance. And that's not easy. But that's the love of God that He has for us and that we're called to do for one another. Well, secondly, to love edifyingly. And what I simply mean by that is to love people for their good. This is an idea to, to what end do we love people? And it's easy to put a smile on our face and... You know, try and cheer somebody up and, and do it. And those are, it's good, that's meaningful. But what is the end? What is the goal of our loving people? 
It's to see them. If they're unbelievers, we want to love them so that they can come to see the truth of the gospel and come to know Jesus Christ. And if they're in Christ, we want to love people so that they are built up in the Lord, to love edifyingly, to love for their good. Everything that God does, He does for our good. Whether that's taking care of our physical needs, sometimes more, sometimes less, but our our food, our clothes, our shelter, our finances. God gives that to us for our good. God went beyond those those physical needs and He came to, to pay the penalty for our sins. So He's looking at our ultimate good, our ultimate need in Christ to take our sin upon Himself. And now as believers, as believers... He allows trials, hardships, things that are difficult into life, difficult people, so that we come to be dependent upon Him and we come to to really mature in Christ. James chapter 1, James exhorts the believers saying, "Beloved, Beloved brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces Patience. Even in the trial, God is working for our good. So, I think for us, we need to consider, how do we love people? Are we loving people on a superficial level, or are we loving people with, uh, with wisdom, with knowledge that moves them towards Christ-likeness, that moves them towards faithfulness to the Lord? Philippians 1, Paul prays for the Philippian church by, by saying this, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. To approve the things that are are best. So that way when you interact with people, you listen to them. You talk to them. You see what challenges are in their life. You see what sins they're wrestling with. You see the areas that God is calling to them to obedience. And you then step in and you encourage them with the Word of God. Right? We take time to purposefully pray with people so that they can experience the the power of God in their life to overcome sin, to follow the Lord. If they're discouraged, to take the promises of Scripture and apply it to them and encourage them. If they're in sin, to come alongside them and graciously correct them. To graciously correct them. We need to go beyond just the the surface-level conversation on a Sunday morning. Hey, how are you doing? Oh, I'm real good. Great, good to hear it. I'll, I'll see you after the service. And begin to love one another in a way that encourages us into Christ-likeness, that is open, where discipleship, real sharpening, iron upon iron, happens. So we need to, to love one another freely and with the good of others in mind, edifyingly. God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to be the propitiation for our sins. And in doing that, not only did He save us, but He also set us an example to follow as His dearly beloved children. Let's pray together. Father, thank You so much for the love You have for us in Christ. Thank You that You chose to love us before we loved You. I pray for those watching, I pray for those present here, that your Spirit would convict us where we need conviction and would prompt us to be able to love those around us in the way that you have loved us. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.